0: Down the Woodstock Road, looking like a kid, feeling like a man carrying a heavy load. Down in the shoes, Belfast blues, nothing to lose. Belfast blues. Well, you know I tried the nine to five, but just couldn't tow the line rope works and that pickle factory nearly blew my
1: mind
0: dynamo shoes belfast blues you know ain't got nothing to lose belfast blues all right I'm older now, they be a little wiser too If I had the chance to do it again The second time around is never the same Now and again when I get home I walk down those old streets alone And every brick, every tree Brings those memories back to Kept me going when I was living
2: alone,
0: living alone, thinking of home, down in the shoes, Belfast Blues, you know ain't got nothing to lose, Belfast
2: Blues.
3: And welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Eric Bell with Belfast Blues. Going back a decade there from his solo material. I've got the great pleasure to welcome Eric here to the Strange Brew. Eric notable for being a founding member and guitarist for Thin Lizzy. And he's got so many great stories here today. So let's hear my chat. With Eric. Well, first of all, thanks for doing this. It's much appreciated. Yeah, no problem, mate. You're literally about to embark on a short tour of the UK with uh, your trio. Um, what have we got in store for that? Is that a mix of uh, your solo material and a few uh, Lizzie classics?
4: Yeah, some of my own stuff and some blues and uh, about two or three thin Lizzie songs.
3: How long's it been since you've played? Because obviously with COVID and everything, uh, I assume things have been harder to to get out there.
4: Yeah, it was virtually impossible. Everything was cancelled. I had about 26 gigs, which we were just about to do, and about three weeks later, the virus hit us. So they were all cancelled. And then I can't record because of the restrictions getting to England and things. So, uh, I've been doing bugger all for <laughs> quite a while.
3: Yeah, I guess this is a great way to ease yourself into it. And I'm hoping that 2022 then uh, should be a, a more um, prolific year for gigs.
4: Absolutely. What would you say? The whole entertainment yeah. business just went completely crazy. Players, cabaret, everything It's all stopped. Like the world over, basically. You know, thousands of, thousands of musicians not working. So uh, as you say, I hope the the new year brings a bit better.
3: Yeah, let's hope. One of your um, older solo tracks, Belfast Blues, feels like um, something that dips into the period of where you were growing up and your formative years. And I, I've read that um, you've never been one for the sort of office or nine to five life, and you've always felt an affinity <laughs> of playing the guitar and being a musician.
4: Yes, the nine to five was um, quite a shock to the system. Hmm. You know, leaving school uh, and having about three months off, and then starting your your day job. My first job was a motor mechanic, and uh, I really loved it. Uh, really, very into into cars and things. But um, I was there for about a year, and then the guy I was working with was fired because he wrecked the boss's car. So I was put on with another guy. And I just completely lost interest in the nine to five and started thinking about trying to make my living as a guitar player.
3: And like many of your peers, you you, you looked up to Hank Marvin?
4: Oh, absolutely. And still do. I think he's just, uh, you know, like I put on the old Shadow's stuff and play it. I mean, even today. And um, mm. yeah, it's just a magical, a magical sound.
3: Over in Ireland, a sort of different but thriving music scene compared to over here in um, England, in that you had the show band scene where you were doing a lot of cover versions, and and that provided you with a great apprenticeship as such.
4: Yeah, the show band scene was um, primarily Irish. It was an Irish thing. Basically, eight guys up on the stage, and uh, some of them were very, very good musicians. But... um, they catered to the crowd, and there was, on average, a 1,000 people would turn up in the Irish ballrooms in those days. It was such a big thing. So the show band I was in, we were working six nights a week, every week on Monday night off. Hmm. And there was Irish show band halls all over Ireland. And there must have been about five, 600 Irish show bands, and we were all working Wow. That was your apprenticeship, in a way. And some people left the show bands and went on to form groups, you know. And you were in the Dreams? I was in the Dreams, yeah.
3: I've heard a single which was uh, uh, written by the Tremolos, I Will See You There, so that was about That's 1968.
4: Right. That's right. The Tremolos were over doing a tour in Ireland, and our our manager of the Dreams show band uh, had something to do with bringing acts over from England to Ireland. The uh, Tremolos is one of them. We went up to their hotel where they were staying, uh, so just outside Dublin. And um, we went into their hotel room, and they sat and
3: <laughs> more or
4: less wrote this song for us as as we were all there. And uh we recorded it and I, th- I think it became I'm not sure I think it was number one for a week or something.
3: It seems to be big in Germany
4: yes, uh we actually went over to Germany. It was my first time ever away uh in europe and uh we went to this um uh we checked into this German hotel and the next the next day the overly efficient Germans turned up. At about half eight in the morning, and we had all hangovers. <laughs> and they said, "Right, you come with us," and took us to the this German TV station. And uh, we had a mime to the to the record. I will see you there. And we were there all the morning.
3: <laughs> and it seemed to be such a jump or a leap for you to leave Belfast and and, and go down to Dublin. Was it because you just felt that you needed a bit more? Well, what
4: happened was I. I got a, an offer to join a, show, a Belfast show band, first of all. I was about
2: right.
4: about 17, and they were based in Glasgow, um, and I joined them. They were pretty bad as a band, but I joined them just so that I could be professional. And then that broke up. I came back to Belfast, got another offer to join a, a show band in Leeds, in Headingley. Oh. So I went to Headingley and lived there for about a year, and then it broke up. And then the third time, I came back to Belfast again and was working in a nine to five job and playing the blues at night. Right. And I got an offer to go down to Dublin to audition for a young show band in Dublin that was farming. So I took the day off work and went down hmm. to Dublin and, and got the job and uh, had to live in Dublin then. La, la, la.
1: Try to arrive with a smile on your face I will Make all the flames
3: leaving the dreams then, and which eventually led you to Path of Thin Lizzy. That's right, yeah. Nothing was cast in stone. It it must have been such a risk.
4: It was a risk. Like, I was taking risks all the time in my life after I left school. It it seemed to be the thing to do, and I caused a lot of trouble in my family Mm -hmm. (laughs) because of the way I was. But, um, you know, I just felt I had to do it. Otherwise, I'd be too late. So yeah, I joined the Dreams, and they were a great band, great guys, great musicians. The wage was great. We were treated really well. Stayed in the best of hotels, mm. and I was I was very happy with it for a while. And then I just thought. Uh, in fact, I went to see uh, a band called Skid Row one night ah. on my night off, mm. and uh, they just blew me away. Gary Moore, yeah. a very good friend of mine was playing guitar and um, Bryce Shields on the bass, Noel Bridgman on drums, mm. and Philip Lynette singing now and again. And I watched that band and I said, God almighty, mm. what am I doing with a show band? So I, I saved up some money with the Dreams because I knew I was going to leave. And about two months later I left and I had nothing. And I went out, and, went out to Dublin on my own around all the pubs looking for musicians and I couldn't get anybody. It's just nobody was interested and I thought, Jesus, what have I done? (laughs) Hmm. And uh, as luck would have it, I don't know how it happened. Uh, uh, To this day, I don't know how it happened. I just went to this particular club that night. It could have been any club, but I went to the Countdown Club and it could have been any band, but it was a band called Orphanage and, uh, Brian he was a drummer and Philip was a singer. I went to a changing room and I took a break and started talking to him. Eventually, he left the changing room um, and had said to Philip, you know, because Philip wanted to play the bass and he wanted to do some of his own songs. And so I said, you know, can I hear the songs? So he came up to my flat uh, a week later with this reel of uh, three songs he had written, which were excellent. And he played them to me, and I said, yeah, that's something. And we formed Thin Lizzy.
3: It doesn't seem long before the first Thin Lizzy single, uh, relatively obscure, um, The Farmer was released. So it, it seemed like you were in the studio relatively quick, but I've, I've heard that you were quite naive in terms of we were, recording. and, and we're... We
4: were very naive. In fact, we, we started bringing in our equipment, and we eventually started bringing in the uh, the P.A. columns and things, and um, <laughs> the guy working in the studio said, oh, you won't need them, lads, uh, <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're singing through microphones in here, you know, you don't need, you don't need your own speakers, and uh, yeah, so we were pretty green. The reason we recorded The Farmer was um, we got an offer to record uh, a single on the, the guy that was working in the studio, he had written a few songs, And he wanted us to play one of his songs on the record on the B-side. And if we did that, he would give us free studio time to record the A-side, which was the former. Um, Philip was very into the band at that point in time, as you can hear, you know. Uh, But I don't know, two or three hundred copies was made which are worth quite a lot of money now. I
3: can imagine. And it was your your idea for the band's name?
4: Yes, yes it was. It was about our sort of fifth rehearsal. And Philip said, uh, we were packing our gear up, and Philip said, what are we going to call the band? You know, we need a name. And we started, um, you know, we started going down comics and book titles and so on and so on. And I had this idea about Tin Lizzie, this female robot that used to be in the Dandy comic. But I thought um, the people in Dublin didn't pronounce their H's really. They said tick and tin for thick and thin. And I thought, right, Tin Lizzie. <laughs> if we put an H in there, thin Lizzie, the people in Dublin are st- still going to pronounce it Tin Lizzie. Yeah. And I would say, no, it isn't. It's thin. It's so. <laughs> they'd have to make an effort to say it correctly, and that, and it would, might stick in their heads. And that was the idea like, uh, behind the whole thing.
3: You weren't a trio, you were a four-piece, I think, weren't you?
4: We were a four-piece, yes. Eric Rickson, who was the original keyboard player with them from the Maritime Club in Belfast, the, the actual original player, I saw him with Dan Morrison and the whole, you know, the whole band. Mm. A few years had passed, and he... He'd done the same thing as me. He was from Belfast, and he was living in Dublin. And he was playing with a, a young show band, as well. Uh, in fact, I think he helped to get some Lizzie like, to get the whole thing sort of moving. Um, that particular night, as I said earlier on, I was looking for musicians and I couldn't find any. And I went to this bar one night uh, on my own, nursing a half pint of Guinness because my money was running out. And Eric Greaveson walked in. And he saw me up up at the bar and he came over and we started talking. He asked me what I was doing. And I said, oh, I've just left the dreams. And he said, what? Huh. Uh, he says, I'm, I'm with a band called Terry and the Trixons. And I'm thinking of leaving uh, the Trixons. Then he said, what are you doing tonight? And We said, nothing. I'd probably go home. Uh, I'm out looking for musicians. And there's no luck. And he says, why don't we go to a club? I'm still working with the Trixons, so I'll you know, I'll buy a few drinks and So we ended up going to the Countdown Club and, uh, you know, there was about eight clubs in Dublin we could have went to, and yet we went there. So, uh, you know, if I hadn't have met Eric that night, I would have probably went home, you know, home to my flat. So, so it's, all, it's all very, um, as if it was meant to be. I
1: sure do appreciate y'all coming. <laughs> Especially you, Skinny Lizzie. Not much I can say Except to like you all afraid Cause I don't know what we're gonna do Lord help me Won't y'all come again Won't y'all come Your faces keep us warm Won't y'all come Papa sits alone All it does is moan. I can sing Like y'all agree I don't know what we're gonna do Lord help me Won't y'all come again Won't y'all come Your faces Keep us warm
3: And so by the time you got signed with Decca, you were Eric had left and you were a free piece.
4: That's right. Yeah, um, we started uh, like as a four piece. We started playing around around Ireland, and the money wasn't great. And um, the manager just said one night, he says, "Listen, I think you're going to have to either break up or go three piece." And Eric Rixon said, "When do you want me to leave?" And um, he left. And that was it, you know. So we got this, uh, again, this fluke happened. This sort of talent scout from Decca Records come over, to Belf- come over to Dublin to see a few acts. And one of them he wanted to see was a, soul's, a, a white soul singer called Ditch Cassidy. Right. And Ditch Cassidy's band, for some strange reason, had broken up that week. And Ditch Cassidy asked us, Philip, myself, and Brian, would be back him for this uh, talent scout. And we said, Yeah. So the talent scout turned up and looked at Ditch and liked Ditch, but he met us around in the pub round the corner about half an hour later and he said, I like you as a group. Would you like to record for DECA? <laughs> you know? Wow. Which is unbelievable. Unbelievable because we were only going about seven months.
3: So to go from Ireland to, to London and, and the London music scene must have been such a difference or, or a reference. Oh
4: man, it blew us away. And the very, the very fact that when we left Ireland we were one of the top groups in the whole of Ireland. Yeah. And then we moved to London and nobody knew who we were. So we had to start from the very bottom again. You know, nobody knew who Thinless he was.
3: Even on that first first album, that sometimes people forget how good the material is. Tracks like Remembering, they've got a, a real wistful feel, your guitar complementing. Was it a quite quick process, recording?
4: Um, whenever I heard Philip's uh, original songs, first of all, yeah. I thought, yeah, I could, I could hear my guitar playing, fitting into them, because they were very melodic. And uh, Bram is such a terrific drummer. And Philip was an excellent bass player, even though he, he hadn't been playing that long. Yeah. Uh, great songwriter, great singer. So we went into the studio, but um, we were we were stoned out of our head, you know, yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah.
4: because the the engineer, the, this big American guy, yeah. Scott English, who wrote um, "High Ho Silver Lining" and "Brandy," I think, which were two really big hits. Yeah. He had this. Like pillowcase full of grass,
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: And he, he just threw it on the table and he said, "Help yourselves, guys," you know, and we just dived in and we were really we were very, very stoned throughout the whole first album, but f- really enjoyed it and um, some great ideas, I thought, and you know, it was, a, it, it was a really good little band at that point in time. <laughs>
1: is your man mm, I can see them smiling looking straight at me you caught me unawares I blushed let's sit beneath this tree and I can't get girlfriend then the first that i ever had the first that i ever kissed and the first to make me sad and i came Remembering the whole I keep on remembering I keep on remembering
3: thing about Thin Lizzy is, is that you retained an Irish identity and that was brought into the music and obviously the lyrics uh like an era from that first album.
4: Absolutely.
3: You weren't just emulating an American sound or an English sound, you were definitively Irish.
4: We were, yes. I don't know, you know, Philip was very much into um, Irish mythology, you know, hmm. The sort of the Celts warriors, the warriors and things like that. Very much into that, and he was very interested in that. So that came into his songwriting. I mean, I played with, uh, I played with three different Irish show bands. So the thing was, like, there wasn't many, there wasn't many English guitar players who had played in Irish show bands. So I, I had that little edge because of that very fact. And then um, Philip and Brian would work on the bass and drums, like really work at it for a very long time. Sometimes in the at the rehearsals, it came out sort of Irish sounding, you know. Yeah. The whole thing, without us trying to do it, it was there. It was in the three of us.
3: And it was Kid Jensen that really gave you and the band a boost because he loved that first album in particular.
4: Absolutely. We recorded that, and we couldn't give it away. It was just there was nobody interested in it at that moment in time. And we were still living in Ireland. I mean, we had come over to London, recorded the album, and then came back to Ireland to live. So we, whenever we came back to Ireland, we had a few copies, like acetates, yeah. of that album. Um, we actually had a party one night in Philip's house, And uh, invited a lot of our sort of fans down to hear the album. And a lot of the fans bought it. Mm. But uh, we couldn't give it away. Uh, There was nobody interested. And one night, I think it was one night we were playing somewhere outside Dublin. And people used to hitch lifts in Ireland to get the gigs and uh, bicycles, God knows what. (laughs) Uh, And one night this guy was hitching a lift and we picked him up. And he couldn't believe it, like, fuck me, Thin (laughs) Lizzy. So he was going to the gig that we were playing at that night. So he started talking to us and he said, um, oh, I heard you on Kid Jensen's uh, radio show the other night. And we didn't know nothing about it. And we said, what do you mean? He says, there's a a DJ called Kid Jensen on Jensen's Dimensions from Luxembourg. and, And he's playing some of the tracks of your first album. And that's how we found out about that, and uh, we asked, were asked to go over to meet him. So we flew over to Luxembourg and met Kit Jensen and went on his show. And Philip and uh, Kid became quite good friends, so he was a great ally, you know. Mm-hmm.
1: It's at the high king with a problem, dreaded Viking, gather all the men folk speaking the Celtic tongue. The land is young Stands red on by
3: I assume having an ally like that, despite not being as successful, even though the the quality of the music was so strong, must have given you at least some sort of boost, recording another album, Shades of a Blue Orphanage. Again, some lovely material on there. Uh, One of my favourites is Sarah. Sure, yeah. Your guitar playing on that is just so brilliant. Oh, thank you. such... It's hard to describe him as a songwriter, just so good. Sure. But you're not overplaying, you're being very, very delicate and complimentary with, with Phil on, on, on a track like that, which is quite personal for him.
4: It is, absolutely. Yeah, the other guy that um, was sort of written for us was uh, John Peel.
3: Right, okay.
4: He, he liked what we were doing as well. So we had, uh, but um, even even when the second album came out, Chairs of Blue Orphanage... We got very, I thought it was quite unfair The a lot of the write-ups we got from, from um, critics and guys in the, you know, in the business saying, oh yeah, the Thin Lizzy, they haven't found their direction yet and their songs are too varied and mixed up and they don't know what direction to go in. And that was all happening at that point in time. And e- even when uh, Vagabonds of the Western world came out, yeah. they were still... Saying all oh, this that, and the other about it, you know, mm. it's, t- it's it's incredible because it's taken nearly fifty years,
2: yeah.
4: <laughs> for people to actually say, "My God, the first three albums are really good," you know.
3: For people that that listen, listen to that material, there's the start of that lead guitar sound, double tracking that that you did. That that later on, that t- twin guitar was something that Thin Lizzy were particularly known from. But there was a direction and sounds that actually you helped to forge, even in those early days.
4: Sure, yeah. Well, that was a, uh, the thing about being a 3 piece was that you know you could use the studio. Uh, a bit more than just having guitar bass and drums, and um I would work out little sort of what would you say like rhythm rhythm patterns, rhythm ideas, and then I would sometimes uh play a sort of a harmony with myself on the guitar, um, yeah, so a lot of people said that what one was it uh, little girl in bloom oh
2: yeah,
4: I think it was where i use I use sort of feedback on the solo and then I I recorded a solo uh, at the end of it with these harmony guitars that sound very like the uh, later Thin Lizzy.
3: And it was in this period that you toured with Slade and that and the Slade fans were very, very boisterous and, and that was oh a bit my of
4: a baptism God. of fire. Oh, they tore us apart because we our manager said, uh, ''Oh, I've got you I've got you on a tour with Slade.'' And we said, ''What? For fuck's sake, what a, a pop band!'' <laughs> And uh, mm. we didn't realize how powerful Slade was on stage. Yeah. And uh, they certainly were really nice guys as well. We got on with them very well. But the very first gig uh, through threw us, because we were used to playing pubs and clubs that held three, 400 people. And the first night we played with Slade, it was a town hall, with like 3,000 people. Yeah. And we walked on and it just, it wasn't right, you know. We were playing the same material in the same way that we'd play in a pub, and it just it didn't come across on a on a huge stage. And we were playing slow numbers and blues and so on, and people just they didn't want to know. And they started shouting us, you know, get off, and we want Slade and all the rest of it. But it, it certainly woke up Philip. Yeah, as a performer. He used to watch Naughty Holder every night, and sit, you know, try and pick up some of his stagecraft. You know, so the next night on the Slate tour, we would walk on, and then I saw Philip sort of throwing a few shapes, you know, <laughs> putting the bass between his legs and so on. So I I started slowly seeing Philip evolving yeah. as as a frontman, and that was the with Slade I would say. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, it, it it threw us completely, uh the slave tour.
1: Little girl in bloom Your love fills the air With the scent of the sweetest sweet perfume You feel so good, you just don't care
3: And the story about Whiskey in the Jar is quite amazing in that I understand it was just something that was just intended as a B-side at best.
4: Well, it wasn't intended as anything because what happened was we were we were rehearsing one day. When This was when we moved to London and we rehearsed in this pub in King's Cross or something nearly every week if we had a day off. And this particular day we were working on one of Philip's songs, but it wasn't happening. We just couldn't get any ideas for it. So we just started messing about. Um, and then Philip picked up, uh, the other six string guitar and started singing all these corny songs, you know, just for a joke. And then about 20 minutes later, he started singing whiskey in the jar, one of the corny songs. And, um, Myself and Brian started just playing along with him a little bit. And at that point, uh, again, this is like, for, uh, it's uncanny the way all this, all these little things happened. Our manager walked in and we stopped playing. And the manager had an amplifier for me to try out, a new amplifier. So we, uh, we put the instruments down and we walked over to look at the amp. And as we were looking at it, the manager said, what was that song you were playing? Like before I come in and we really didn't know what he was talking about. And uh, he kept on at it. What was that song you were playing? And Phil said, Oh for fuck's sake, man, I'm only messing about you know what was it? Whiskey in the jar and the manager said, You're recording your first uh, single for Decca in six weeks. Have you got a have you got an A side? And we said, Yeah, Black Boys in the Corner is called Have you got a B-side? Well, we're working on it a bit. Well, why don't you record Whiskey in the Jar? We're going to throw them out the second window, you know. (laughs) Anyway, six weeks later, we're in the studio, and we record Black Boys in the Corner, which come out great. And then everybody looked at each other and said, right, what are you going to do for the the B-side? So again, our manager was there, and he said, "Why why don't you try Whiskey in the Jar? You know? Just see what it's like. So myself and Phil went out with two acoustic guitars and, and the drums and Philip singing. And we recorded it like a rough a rough take and went in to listen to it. And everybody said, wow, you want to work on this? It, it could be a hit. And everybody could hear this except us. So anyway, I went out to put some guitar on it and I could, I hadn't a clue what to play. No idea whatsoever. I tried a few things I didn't like what I'd done and uh, I come back and I said, "No, I can't think of anything at the moment." So they give me a cassette to work on, which I took home, and I worked at it for quite a long time and I come up with the intro the on the the riff and the guitar solo it took a long time it took a good five, six weeks. And everybody was pressurizing me. When are you going to do this freaking guitar?
2: Hmm.
4: You know, and I'm saying, yeah, okay, like, I'm still working on it. I've nearly got it. And I went in and uh, just played it. And everybody said, right, great. And then we, we released, uh, we released uh, Whiskey in the Jar. And it didn't do anything for about two months. Oh. It was out. And we said to the management, he fucking told you we shouldn't have recorded that. And then slowly it started. We were in Germany at this time doing this. It wasn't a great tour in Germany. And uh, I, I remember we all got up for breakfast the next day in, a, in, a, in the German hotel. And the, the guy in reception came over. He says, uh, a telegram for you boys. And we saw the telegram and said, uh, congratulations, whiskey in the jars number fourteen and the English charts, come home. <laughs> <laughs> and we did, you know, and it got to number six, I think, and uh, number one in Ireland. And it, the whole band changed, you know. It, it, like, for a band to get a hit record, it's just the change, you know, that that does. is it, just incredible.
3: Your guitar part throughout that, especially that hugely evocative opening for that, it just, it's just one of the greatest moments in... In in music so I mean some legacy that you have there. Thank
4: you very much Yeah well I had uh, um, I remember that point in time we were playing in Wales one night and I was still trying to think of a guitar parch for a whiskey in the jar and Philip used to play cassettes in the car and um, all varied stuff, Hendrix and Deep Purple and Bob Marley, the Chieftains, so on and so on. And this night he had the Chieftains on and as I was listening to them I thought that's what I should be doing. Like for the intro to Whiskey in the Jar, forget about the guitar and listen to another instrument and the Irish pipes I heard in the Chieftains. In fact, Paddy Maloney passed away last week. Um, And I got, yeah, so that was like a the Irish pipes I was trying to emulate, you know. Mm -hmm.
3: Another great single for Thin Lizzy in that period was The Rocker, and that, and that was credited to the band. How, how was that written?
4: Yeah, when Thin Lizzy first formed in Dublin, I had a flat, and Philip had his flat, and Brian he lived to his parents, and after after we got together, we'd been together about six weeks. I'd only known Philip about six weeks, and he said one day, hey Eric, do you fancy getting a house together? And we can work on our music every day instead of once a week at a rehearsal room. So Philip went out and got, got this really nice uh, sort of part of a house out in Clintarf in Dublin. And we, um, we moved in together. And then my girlfriend moved in and Philip's girlfriend moved in. Anyway, I'd be sitting on the, on the sofa playing an acoustic guitar and Philip would walk past me and he would say, is that yours, Eric? And I'd say, no, it's of such and such an album. And then he'd walk past again, a few days later. Is that yours? I'd say, yeah. And that's how some of the songs happened. Um, on this particular day, I was playing a part of the rocker. That I mean, I was just making her up. And Philip came over to me and says, is that yours? I said, yeah. So he said, right. So it, Once he heard an idea, he would go for it, uh, as far as songwriting was concerned. You know, that's what he heard. He heard me doing the chord chord intro and the... That type of thing. So he would start working on lyrics. And then maybe about three or four days later, he'd say, listen, can we try this? So he would have the lyrics and the the melody of the song, and I'd have the, the chords... I would just sit down and sort of work at it, you know, and that's how that's how the rocker came about.
3: I've read that in terms of uh, you leaving the band, it was just the, the lifestyle and I guess the success and everything was just so full on in that period.
4: It was, yeah. My uh, I was drinking a lot and doing a lot of dope and anything I could get, actually, because like you were you were young then, like I was twenty one or something. Yeah so it, it wasn't unusual for a 21 year old musician <laughs> to do those things but it affected my lifestyle and there was a lot of um, tension in my private life with my girlfriend and we had a son together and I just couldn't get it together mm. to be a family man and as thin as we were working very heavy in those days uh, our management had us everywhere just working constantly So yeah, yeah, you were living that lifestyle, you know, Yeah. And just, I was getting worse and I I couldn't actually stop, I couldn't stop drinking and all the rest of it. I just hadn't got the willpower in those days to do it. Mm -hmm. So I just got this warning, you know, this, um, inner sort of voice that you sometimes hear, you know, it kept saying to me, listen, you got to get out of here. You know, you got to get out of this situation. Or God knows what way you're going to end up, you know, a junkie or an alcoholic or up in the fucking yeah. loony <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, that's what it was like. That's why I left. You know, I couldn't adapt to the lifestyle. You know, it was like constant partying. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I mean, who wouldn't for quite a while? But it started taking its toll on me. I think because of my 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 personal life as well was starting to get affected, and I just one night um, we were halfway through an Irish tour, and I played in my home in Belfast in uh, Queen's University, yeah. and I was like away with the fairies at this point in time. So we walked on to play, and uh, you know it should have been the gig should have been cancelled. Mm. But no, no, not in those days. If it had happened years later, they would have had the money to put me in to a sort of a treatment clinic for a few weeks to dry out and things. Mm. But the, they couldn't afford that in these days, so it was just uh, pull yourself together. Come on, there's another gig to be done, you know. And it just went on and on. And one night it just, I just came to a head, and I threw the guitar up in the air, kicked the amplifiers off the stage. What a way to leave. And that was it.
1: Kick your face, you'd soon be seen. Hey, little girl, keep your hands top of me. I knew she was up for something, and I kissed her right there out of the blue. I said, hey, baby, meet me, I'm a tough guy, Got my sickle outside, you want to try? She just looked at me and rolled them big eyes and said, oh, I'd do anything for you, because you're a rocker.
3: Gary Moore joined Finn Lizzy after, and it, it's amazing the connection that you have with Gary, and that there was a, a range of bands, and, and that you kind of either followed each other. We did absolutely. And you seem to have a, a really strong connection. In fact, on a, on one of your solo albums, Exile, you've got a, well, literally a song for Gary. Yeah,
4: that's right.
3: You've had a, a, you know it was such a, a relationship, and and your paths crossed so many times with Gary we Moore. We did,
4: yeah. You know, we went back a very long very long time and in fact that song song for gary one of the reasons i wrote it was after gary had passed away uh, there was nobody doing anything about him you know there was no tribute there was no statue there was no this there was no that and i thought for fuck's sake Mm. this is ridiculous Uh, there's nobody paying the guy any any tribute and i said i'm going to write a song about him and I wrote a song for Gary, and it is very, very true the statement that's in the song. Uh, I did meet him when he was 11 years of age, and it was in a club in Hollywood in Northern Ireland. And uh, that's the night we, that we met each other. That would have been about 16 now, and Gary was 11. And um, we just struck up this sort of friendship, and he would come and watch me playing in Belfast, and I'd go and watch mm. him playing. So you know, we knew each other for quite a long time, and then whenever I freaked out, as I said, it was like halfway through an Irish tour. So the next day, the management phoned me up uh, in Belfast and they said, "Eric, what the fuck's going on over there? Do you not realise you're halfway through an Irish tour? You can't leave the band now." And I said, "Listen, mate, I I have to. I've left." I've made up my mind, I've made, I've made the move, I can't do it anymore. And he said, right, was that your last word? And I said, yeah. And he says, okay. And that's when I got Gary. And I, of course, Gary knew Philip very well, and Bran Downey, you know. So he was the obvious choice.
0: summer evening the deltones the group i was planning at the time was booked to play a club in hollywood hollywood northern ireland when we arrived as i was getting out of the van heard the sweet sound of an electric guitar and as we walked in there was a kid up on the stage about 11 years age. This is a song for you Straight from the heart it's true This is a song for you After the gig had finished I was up on stage away my guitar. When the young kid came up and we started talking, he told me his name was Gary. And through the years, our paths would cross again and again. He passed away at the age of 58. Someday we'll meet again.
3: In a few years, you were you were playing with Noel Redding. In terms of musically, it wasn't a, as good a fit for you?
4: No, it was <laughs> desperate. I joined him first, and I, I was quite starstruck because he was Hendrix's bass player. And uh, he was living in Cork, West Cork in Ireland. I thought he was living in London. And I was living in Dublin at that point. And so he got in touch with me, and he, he says, uh, Hello, mate, how are you? This is Noel Redding. And I thought it was one of my friends sort of having a joke. You know, Noel Redding? And uh, I said, yeah, come on. He said, no, I am Noel Redding, you know. Do you fancy coming down for a blow? And I said, what do you mean coming down? He says, I'm living in West Cork. You're in Dublin, aren't you? I said, yeah. I'll come down and, you know, we'll meet each other and see what's what. So I I got the train down to... Cork and Noah picked me up and uh, drove me to this gigantic, old-fashioned country house in the middle of nowhere in Ireland. And then I met the other guys out of the band. But I, I thought it was going to be a three-piece, but it wasn't. It was keyboards as well, and which threw me a bit. And uh, cause I was used to being in a three-piece band. And also because it was ex-Hendrix player, I thought he was going to go for another three-piece band. But um, there was uh, a guy called Dave Clark uh, who wrote most of the songs on played keyboards. Very nice guy. And um, his songs, his his lyrics, he was a a good lyricist, a good lyric writer, but uh, I didn't like the songs. I didn't like the, the structure of them or the way they were being played. It was very, I just couldn't get into it. And uh, Noel was giving me a very hard, hard time at that point as well. He would get totally, really wrecked, really stoned, and really drunken, become quite cynical and uh, loudmouthed, you know. And I was, uh, I thought to myself, "Fuck this! Uh, I don't need this," you know, "out of the frying pan into the fire" type thing. So I, I left the band the Noel Redding Band about five times in about four months. I left five times hmm. and they kept asking me back. And then I said, no, I, I'm, I don't fit in. I don't get all my I don't like the music. And they somehow talked me back in. And then the management who took us over said, listen, Eric, there's a good chance the band's going to go to America. And I'd never been to America. So I thought, right, I might use this as a vehicle. To get to America, so we got to America and we were there for like eleven weeks. Eleven week tour, it's very long. And uh, Noel and me became really good friends. He just, the guy just changed into a really nice guy, and um, we stayed friends until he passed away. Yeah, I just couldn't really get into the band, you know.
3: One of the songs. I think it was on the blowing album. It was, was yours, "Love and War."
4: Yeah, that was uh, that. Was, I wish I hadn't put it on because um, I hadn't really got into songwriting at that point, and and the management said, "Eric, um, few these songs because Dave, Dave's written all his and recorded all of his. Have you any ideas?" And I thought. Um, I sort of had had a little bit of love and war sort of in my head but I just wish we hadn't done it Um, like I'm more into songwriting these days
3: I was going to ask you about that because I mean especially over the past decade your your, your songwriting has has blossomed so much and uh, one of the favourite of mine for example is Gotta Say Bye Bye so as a songwriter what was it that for you marked that shift into songwriting?
4: In, like in one respect uh, like when I started playing guitar was um, I got to meet Van Morrison when I was very, quite young
2: right.
4: and I played with Van and uh, was up in his house and everything way back in about 1966 hmm. so Van was the first guy whenever I went to his house he had this big tape recorder and he had written three or four songs and he had, these, he had these on the tape recorder. Uh, I took my guitar out and he, he lit a cigarette and he said, right, this one's in G, can you just jam along with it? So I had never heard this uh, song in my life before. So I just started jamming along with it, playing along with it to see what I could do. But it was the first time that I'd ever played guitar on somebody's original song, which is quite a different thing than copying off a record, you know, mm-hmm. and that's how that started. And then, of course, when I met Philip, Philip was writing his own songs mm-hmm. and I was working on the songs with Philip and he would ask me sometimes, hey, Eric, have you any ideas how to get this part of the song to this part of the song that uh, there was a sort of a gap in between? And he couldn't think of nothing. So I'd rack my head to see if I could come up with ideas. Mm-hmm. So that was that started me actually working on songwriting, uh, helping Philip to finish his songs. Um, and then I didn't bother for quite a while about songwriting. I just became a guitar player, playing in different bands. And uh, at one point, I wasn't doing very much. And I, I started. Um, I bought this little small tape recorder, and I just started working on songs and, and writing down lyrics and so on and so on. And that's how the whole thing started. Like that one, uh, got to say bye bye. That was a, that's the only time in my life that's happened. I was living in West Cork at the time, and I remember waking up in bed, and that <laughs> that, that was going through my head. And I thought, where have I heard this before? Whose song is this? Mm-hmm. And like you start thinking that way, you know, this is somebody else's. But anyway, I just thought, oh well, the hell with it, and I started working on it, and I got the whole song very quickly, because it was, it was like part of a dream that I, I'd heard that melody, as I was asleep, and I woke up and it was still in my head, and I said, if I don't, if I don't get this, it's gone. So <laughs> I picked up my guitar and little, a little uh, cassette recorder, and I just started working on it, you know the only time that's ever happened uh, dream wise
1: things that you said wrong true. I've got to say bye-bye to
0: you One night I happened to be walking along down that same old street Gas lamp shone. Then I saw you close together, and my heart fluttered like a feather. I gotta say bye bye to you.
1: you never again make me. I've got to send my body.
0: You go your way, I'll go mine. Might meet again at the end of time. Oh, God, has said bye bye
1: to you. You never again make me please. The things that you said weren't true. Gotta
3: say to you. Another great solo track of yours is the title track of the album Standing at, at a Bus Stop. I think that was about you going back into Dublin and being around some of the places that you were there before.
4: Yes, it was. It was um, what well, I went down to Dublin first to do that audition. The audition was held in this place called um, Desmond Dominican's School of Music and Speech Therapy. It was about singing and uh, he had this big building and that's where the auditions of the Dream Show Band was held, in that building. And uh, years later, Thin Lizzy used to rehearse in that building, the same room, the same building. And then years later after I'd left them, Lizzie, I was living in London and I moved from London back to Dublin. And it was like a fucking nightmare. Mm. It just, the whole thing was like bizarre. And I was with my girlfriend and we had a, our son was about one year old at that point in time. And I thought I would come back to Dublin and get a great band together and so on. And it was like, oh, it was like, it was like a nightmare. And I remember standing at that bus stop, which was outside Desmond Domnigan's, where I'd got the job with the Dream Show Band and also Thin Lizzy, rehearsed, and years and years and years later, I'm standing at the same bus stop. And this time, I'm on a downer, you know, hmm. really, really depressed because I just can't get anything together. And it, it was just ironic, you know, standing at this bus stop and all the things that happened in the past, and now I'm back at the exact same bus stop. And I said, Jesus, man, there's a song here somewhere.
3: One of the things I, I saw looking at your website is that you have a autobiography?
4: I have, yeah. Yeah, that was... I'm um, uh, very lucky to meet this guy in England, a guy called Andy Quinn, who's my manager now. Hmm. Um, he phoned me up out of the blue when I was living in West Corp, and he said, to, or he did... Email emailed me, rather, and he said, uh, I'm running this um, blues gig near Manchester, and we've got this night that's going to be a blues night. wonder, would you come over and headline it? So I said, well, okay. And I went over and um, did the gig. And then at the end of the gig, he came over to pay me and to do this at New York and thanked me for turning up and so on. And we had a drink together, and I found out that he was a he was a guitar player himself. And um, early Thin he was one of his favourite bands. He's been trying to learn the solo out of um, the Hero and the Madman uh-huh. for quite a while, and he said he couldn't do it. And he said maybe sometime you can you can show us how you do it. And uh, I said yeah, of course. So anyway, uh, the next day I flew back to West Cork, and then. Andy Quinn, that's the guy's name, emailed me again a week later and said, do you fancy coming over to record an album? So uh, it was amazing. Um, he helped me so much and got me to record the Exile album. Yeah. And then um, at one point we were talking about something and I said, oh yeah, I'm halfway through um, writing this book, but I've stopped. And he said, well, why don't you start it again? You know, why don't you finish it? I said, Uh but anyway, he, he he sort of gave me the idea to finish it, which I did. And then he got it, you know, he got it together to get it into book form. And we were going to get it into the shops, and then our our friend Devaris came along, so all that was put on hold. So I think he's trying to get he's trying to get it into the shops at the moment, like Waterstones and things. Um, so you know, I'm not really too sure yet.
3: It seems, especially you know, the, the, these few dates that you've got coming up. It sounds like you'll be able to do a lot more dates in in UK and Ireland. I assume.
4: I'm hoping for it, yeah. And even uh, we've got a few in uh, Europe for next year. You know, around uh, Holland and things like that, which would be nice.
3: Yeah, lots to look forward to, Eric. I can't tell you how much of a pleasure it has been to talk to you today. Such remarkable music. Not only with Thin Lizzy, but your own solo material, which is um, definitely worth seeking out. Thank
4: you very much, Jason, for the for the nice uh, the compliments. It was, a, it was a really nice talk. All right. Well, all the best with the talk. All right, Jason, Thanks very much, Matt. <laughs>
0: A bus stop, guitar case in my hand All around me still the same It was where it all began When I was brought down here to Dublin in the back of a Jaguar car Way back then in 69 My God have we come far Standing at a bus stop I don't know what to do the sky is grey, the building's greyer and I'm just kind of blue And outside Desmond me I again to catch a glimpse of my own past As I look a ghost in a showbanc just down from Belfast Ooh, time has swept it all away I just can't believe I'm standing here today Trying to swallow my pride before the fall I'm standing at a bus stop And the windows of the houses stir with sad empty eyes Just like the vacuum in the soul I really feel like going home really feel